Well, good morning again. I always love having the kids up front, and they, it doesn't take much to see the joy in their faces. Love that. Love Advent and the fact that we only have one more Sunday before Christmas. Can you believe it already? <coughs> it's kind of shocking and surprising. But we're going to continue in our First John uh, series and actually finish it out today, hopefully. But as we begin, I have a question. Have you ever asked God for something and he didn't, he didn't give you what you asked for? Good. Somebody laughed. Uh, see, because I think the right question then is, when was the last time that you asked God for something and you didn't get what you asked for? Um, my guess is that probably happens pretty often. Hopefully you are a person of prayer, and so you know that it is okay to ask God for things. And actually, in, if you've been reading um, through 1 John, hopefully you were reading 1 John 5 every day this week as you were preparing for the sermon. Uh, it talks a little bit about this, but if you have asked God for something and he said no, I guess it leads you to the question, if it's never led you to this question, uh, talk with some people who don't know Jesus and they, they will ask you this question, is God not good? Because that becomes what they wonder. Uh, if you believe that God is all-powerful, then that becomes kind of the, the question they have. Is he either not all-powerful or is he not good? Because if you ask for something that seems good and he says no, well, then how can he be either all-powerful or all-loving? Either he doesn't have the power to fulfill your request or he doesn't have the love to fulfill that request. And uh, hopefully if you've journeyed with Jesus long enough, you realize that's, that's not a very good question. Uh, because it lacks perspective. It lacks uh, the knowledge of who God is. See, if God says no, there's always a reason. Uh, if you've ever had uh, a child uh, under the age of five, you'll realize uh, they will question your goodness often <laughs> when you say no. Don't you love me? It's like, yes, that's why I'm saying no. And I know in your mind you think that thing you want is so good and it will just bring you the, the ultimate level of joy and you'll never be sad again, but I promise you it's not going to be good for you. So no, you're not allowed to play in the middle of the street, uh, even though you think it's a good thing. And as adults, as Christians, sometimes we can have the same heart of a child in that respect as we think we're asking for something good. And, and if God was, was truly good and truly powerful enough, then he would grant our request. Well, I remember, uh, and I've said this, but you might have thought I was joking. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I asked God uh, whenever I was preparing for ministry, and I said, Lord, I will go anywhere in the world that you send me. The one place I really don't ever want to end up is New Jersey. I will live, like Africa, it's all good. South America, all good. Antarctica, all good. Just not New Jersey. Well, guess where I live from 2008 to 2015? New Jersey. Uh, and God said, <laughs> yes, I got the only good thing in Jersey, and I got out. Uh, so... Jersey is no longer redeemed because Jackie's here now. Uh, 
But yes, I lived there for about seven years. Uh, but if God granted my request and I never went to New Jersey, I'd never have met Jackie. Uh, so I'm really glad that God didn't listen to me. Uh, I don't know how happy she is sometimes that God didn't listen to me, but uh, I know I'm happy that he didn't listen to me. And he said, no, uh, seemed, like a, seemed like God was failing me as he called me to New Jersey. and He made it very clear I was going there, but uh, it w- it's only by journeying with him that you realize, oh, your plans are, are better than mine. I don't know everything because I don't see tomorrow like you do. Even when we ask something that seems really, really good, like, God, heal this person. Uh, God, fix this problem. Fix that marriage. Fix this, this horrible problem. And God says, no, it's a lot harder to accept his goodness and to accept his perspective in those moments. In the last few verses of John's letter, he explains the dynamics of us asking things of God And it should make us wonder, John tells us, what's happening when we're asking God for things and we're not getting what we ask for. That it shouldn't just be like, oh man, or oh, I guess God's plans are bigger, but there should be something else happening if we're asking for something and not getting what we ask for. So uh, if you have your own Bibles, you can uh, follow along in your own copy of God's Word. The words will be on the screen if you don't. But we'll be reading from the ESV today like we normally do. So uh, if you want to follow along in in your own translation, you can do that. But we're going to start in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, If you have been with us from the beginning of 1 John, then you know... uh, He mentions a handful of times throughout his letter the purpose, the reason he has written this letter. He's got a couple reasons, uh, and he kind of reiterates that reason here. He adds adds to that. Uh, But there are two things that John accomplishes with this statement. First, he makes it clear that his audience are believers. This was written for people who believe. Uh, He wasn't writing to the false teachers. This wasn't one of those uh, letters written to them to rebuke them or to condemn them or to tell them how wrong they were. His audience are the believers. Uh, Wherever We don't know exactly where this letter was supposed to end up, but we do know that whoever was initially reading this letter, that they were believers, and he was writing for their benefit. He's not writing to the the heretics or for anybody else or even the unbelievers in their midst. This is a letter for the believers. This should resonate. The things we've talked about should resonate in the heart of those who know Jesus is what John is saying. Second, John is making it clear that salvation is about believing in Jesus. That's it. Not all the stuff that we add to it. That it's really believing in Jesus. Not believing in Jesus and all of these other things. Believing in Jesus and giving this up. Believing in Jesus and giving that up. Uh, I heard a a cool video, a guy talking about um, what really the good news is this past week. And it was like, man, if if you are are steeped in sin, guess what? Jesus loves you. That's the good news. It's not, well, once you get that cleaned up, Jesus will love you. It's not once you stop this sin, Jesus will love you. It, you know, whether you're talking to a murderer, whether you're talking to somebody uh, who's living with uh, their girlfriend, whether you're talking to somebody steeped in homosexuality, whatever the sin is, it's not, well, if you're willing to give that up, Jesus will love you. The good news is Jesus loves you. 
and he is who he said he is. Now, if you're steeped in sin, Jesus loves you, you come to know him, now there's some other news that you need to get a hold of, is that uh, just like Jesus, what Jesus did for us, what? Jesus died for us. Guess what we're called to do for Jesus? To die to ourselves. Whatever your desires are, whatever your sin was, you die to that. You lay that down, just as he laid his life down for us. That's the good news. And John's making it clear, that's, that's it. It's just Jesus loves you, and he is who he said he is, and salvation is about believing in him. For too long, the church has been about behavioral management. And we say, well, you've got to look a certain way, you've got to act a certain way. We're going to look at you weird if you walk in and you smell like smoke or you smell like weed or whatever it is that you smell like this morning. Uh, we're just going to look at you a little strange because you don't fit our mold. Guess what? That's not the gospel. The gospel says, in that stuff, Jesus loves you. He loves you despite all the other stuff. He loves me despite my pridefulness and my arrogance. The same person that's looking at you weird, he loves them too, even in their junk. He loves them. And when we can tell people the good news and not add our stuff to it, that's what John's getting at here. Because that's what this, these heresies were all about. They were about adding stuff to the gospel and saying, well, yeah, Jesus loves you, but he loves you more when you do this. And it's like, nah, John's saying that's not true. Uh, and we've already talked about some of the other heresies that, he, that he's uh, refuted in this. Um, but he's really going after this idea that there are any other steps to salvation other than believing in Jesus. That if you would just get a proper view of who he is, that's what will change your life. We were just talking about this this morning again with the elders. It was, you know, the, the tendency for Christians to try to fix people. We try to work on them. We try to uh, condemn them. We try to talk to them, you know, about all these other things. And it's like, man, if, if I can get you to have a clear picture of Jesus, my work is done. Because when you come face to face with him, there is nothing that I could say that can compare to that. There is no rebuke I can give you. There's no shame I could put on you that would have a, even a close to the similar effect of you coming face to face with Jesus. That's what we're called to do. That's what we have the privilege of doing is walking with people to Jesus and saying, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus because he can do what I can't. I can try, I can mimic it, and I can maybe get you to stop sinning for a little bit by rebuking you and making you feel shameful about it, but just one touch from him and you won't want to do it anymore. Everything falls to the wayside when we meet Jesus. And guess what? The problem with it is, is we think, well, I met him that one time, so I'm good. No, no, no. Every day, getting back to Jesus, seeing face-to-face, -face, getting face-to-face -face with Jesus. That's what helps us walk with him. Uh, next verse, verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this verse, uh, you might read this and say, oh, great, so basically we ask God for something, we're going to get it. And I've talked to more than one person who says, well, the Bible says if you ask God, he's going to give it to you. No, that's not what the Bible says. You're not understanding. See, first off, you've got to read all of 1 John because it's a whole letter. It was never supposed to be broken up into chapters and verses to begin with. So this is a whole letter. Read the whole thing. Read it in context of what he's saying. And then you get to this part where he says this and understand what he's saying. This, this is way more about aligning our will to God's than it is about getting stuff from him. It, this has nothing, this isn't about getting stuff from God. The whole point of this is aligning our will to his. The importance of what John is saying here is that when we ask something, it will be in line 
with the will of God. That's walking with him, that we will only want to ask things that are in the will of God. And if we're If we are in relationship with him, if we believe that he is who he said he is, we will want the things that he wants if our will is in line with his will. And I'll give you one guess as to whose will needs to change for our wills to line up. And it's not his, okay? Uh, Although it seems silly, but think about the way you pray. Are you trying to change God's mind? Are you trying to convince him? Are you trying to talk him into your point of view? Because I hear a lot of prayers like that. I hear a lot of people trying to talk God in to their point of view and their perspective. Trying to convince him, this is the good thing, God. If you would just do this, don't you understand what this would do for me? Instead of that person trying to align their will to God's. And it continues, and again, if you break these verses down by verse by verse and you just read them separately, it seems like what it's saying is all we've got to do is ask God. He's going to give us what we want. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the, re- the requests that we have asked of him. Wow, this, this is just saying that we just basically ask it and we're going to have it, right? We can have confidence that God hears us and we will receive from him if we align our will to his. Again, read it in context. Understand what John has been talking about this whole time. This is about the goodness of God. This is John affirming the goodness of God, that when we ask in line with his will, he will always give us those things because he, he wants to bless us in line with his will. If God hears our requests, we know that he is capable of fulfilling them. So this speaks to how good God is. The power is never the question. Sometimes we can wonder about, is God strong enough? Is he powerful enough? But more often than not, if you're like most people, you question God's goodness. Why? Why? I've talked to many people who had someone died that they loved, and they said, well, he's obviously not loving. Because if he is, he would have done this thing. And that's where we get to. He will give us what we ask of him when it aligns with his will. Now, you may be asking yourself this question because hopefully as you've been processing this, you get to this point where you say, why do we only get what we ask when our will aligns to his? That seems kind of self-serving. That seems kind of selfish of God that he would only give us what we want when our will aligns with his. Because we're people, because we're imperfect. But let me follow that up with a few questions. Do you think it is good for us or bad for us if our will is not aligned to that of God? Do you think that will lead us to prosper and success when our will is not aligned to His? Do you think that you'd be happier or less happy if your will was aligned to that of God? See, it can almost seem self-serving, like, oh, God, you're so, so what? You're only going to give me what I ask as long as it lines up with what you want. And he said, yeah, this is a way to help draw you to be in a place where you want what I want because what I want is, for, is, is good 
The Bible tells us he, he has plans to prosper us, not to fail us or to harm us or to do bad things. If we know who God is, he is good, and his goal is always to prosper, not maybe in the way that we think, but it's for his kingdom to advance. And if our will aligns to his, it is only gonna be good. Now I say that if you understand who God is, you know that that might mean a lifetime of suffering for you, but guess what? Even that is good. Just because you don't get what you want in the moment and you might not be happy. I love what we talked about in the Advent reading is joy. Happiness is a result of a situation. I feel happy right now. Why? Because I had my coffee. Uh, I'm in a nice quiet place. Nobody's bothered me yet. But joy, joy is a choice. We choose joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of wherever we are. Joy is, is not the result of a temporary situation, but it's a lifestyle choice to live in joy. Sometimes we'll refer to it like, oh, that's a happy person. And it's like, yeah, that might be true, but if, if that person's always joyful, then that's, that's joy we're talking about. That person's learned what it means to enjoy God, enjoy his goodness and, and know him. See, the problem that we can sometimes have is the same one that we view the world with. It's the spirit that constantly asks before engaging in anything, what will I get out of this? What am I going to get out of this? It's the reason people leave churches. Why? Because they don't get what they want. I don't like this. This isn't what I wanted. This is, I'm, not, I'm not getting what I wanted. And it's... If you've had this conversation with me, I, I, you know I'm not uh, shy in what I say, but uh, it, it always frustrates me when someone says, yeah, well, Pastor, you know, I came here because I like your preaching, and I wasn't getting what I wanted from the last church. But now I'm getting what I want here. Well, good for you. But that's not what God wants. I told you uh, one of the coolest conversations I ever had with somebody as they called a uh, church I was working at, and they said, hey, my family just moved into town, and I just want to know what kind of ministries do you have, and I'm like, I'm ready for the typical conversation. And they say, yeah, we want to know what, what ministries you have, what things you have going on, because we're trying to figure out where we can serve, where we can get plugged in and use our gifts. And I'm like, oh, hold on. i got to sit down for a moment here. <laughs> so you're not asking what you can get from us. You're trying to find a church where you can plug in and use the gifts God gave you, and you can serve? Well, that's pretty cool. Because usually it's, a, it's the opposite. It's, what do you have for me? What do you have for my kids? What can, how can I benefit from this place? And God is saying here, just align your will to mine. It's not about what you're going to get. It's about aligning your will to mine because that is better. Whether you get riches from that, whether your life is, is a bed of roses, that's unimportant. Because when you're walking in the will of God, all the other stuff doesn't matter. Think about Paul. I mean, Paul and, and, and Peter and all of those guys, they weren't these amazing people. I mean, look at their lives before Jesus. They weren't amazing people, but they met Jesus, and all of a sudden, sitting in a prison cell seemed like the best place to be because if that's what God's will was, and that's where they wanted to be, in the will of God. See, when our will aligns to that of God, what we get is God. And there is nothing better than that. When our will is aligned to His, we'll be so less concerned about getting stuff from God than we will be concerned with enjoying the presence and the oneness 
we have with God. I know I've, I've mentioned this before. Jack and I really took away from the, the weekend to remember this idea that in marriage, and I, I know this is part of why God, God uses the idea of marriage uh, in our rela- his relationship to us, um, to, to use that as an analogy, because one of the things they talked about is in your marriage, you are always moving toward oneness or you're moving toward isolation. There is no choice, there is nothing I can do in my marriage that is completely middle of the line. Every decision we make moves us toward oneness or toward isolation. And I think the same is true with God. Everything we do either moves us toward oneness with him or moves us toward isolation. This idea that we can be Christians without ever engaging in community, without ever uh, being a part of what God is doing, without ever spending time with him, with praying only when the, the things are really, really bad and in a crisis, and things, that's not Christianity. That's isolation. And we should be moving toward a place of oneness with God. And that's what John is getting at here. When our will aligns to his, when we're lined up with him, there's a oneness. And that is in itself the reward, is being in oneness with God. Some of you, hopefully, if you're believers, you know the seasons where you have felt like you and God were right in line. Did it matter if everything else in your life was perfect? It didn't. Because you felt that oneness with God, and that is such a beautiful. And then you probably know what it feels like to not be in oneness with God. Like you and God are going in different directions, and you feel like you just can't connect with Him. Does it matter how much money was in your bank account, what car you were driving, anything else? Did it matter? No. Because you felt that separation from God. You knew you weren't in sync with Him, and that's a miserable feeling. And so when we think, like, oh, this is self serving of God to say, I'm only going to give you what you want when our wills align, He's saying, but what you get is our wills aligning. And then when you ask something, it'll be right in line with that, and it'll be beautiful, and it's this beautiful thing, this oneness. If we're consistently asking God for something, and we're not getting what we want, this should be a clear indicator that our will is not aligned to His. And that's what I was saying when we started this, is if you're constantly asking God for something, you're not getting what you want, instead of just complaining or thinking like, oh, well, I guess God said no for today, it should give us a moment to pause and say, hold on, if I'm consistently not getting what I ask for, is my will actually aligned to his? Because the word of God says that when I ask something, I'll get it if our wills are aligned. And so what's going on here? Maybe I'm out of alignment. How have I lost oneness with God in this area? Instead of complaining that we're not getting what we want, we should focus on moving toward oneness with God, to sit in his presence, to approach him in in whatever way that he's designed us to approach him. Each of us is, is very different in that. Some of us, we love worship, like music, that's it, that gets us into the presence of God. Some of you, you love that prayer closet idea, that just being in a, in a closed space and being quiet. I, I, for me, it's being outside, being outdoors, that's like my primary way, is just walking in, in wilderness or sitting in a kayak and just connecting with him. That oneness, that's what we need. John then starts to move from a focus of aligning our will to that of God's, to a focus on those around us that we are in community with. It's not enough simply to focus on ourselves and just be worried about our own righteousness. 
Because that's the thing with Christianity, and I forget where I read it now, but somebody uh, was talking about how the, the, the one unique thing about the New Testament church that was so different from everything else, the one thing that, ma- that made it it's, it's so different was community. It was this focus, this drive, the fact that you cannot have Christianity without community. It was designed that way. It's baked into it. It was never about just you and God. It's about community. It's always been and it always will be about community. See, our culture has created a very individualistic Christianity. This idea that, well, all I have to do is believe in God and that's good enough. It's, you know, it's, it's what works for me. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be involved in community. I don't need any of that stuff. All I need is it's just about between my relationship between me and, and Jesus. And while in one aspect that is true, uh, your salvation, you're the only, that's the only salvation you can uh, really do something about is your own between you and Jesus, and that's the primary thing that you need to be concerned about, but what the New Testament tells us is it's also so much about community, about putting others' needs before uh, ourselves, uh, considering other people more significant than us, and serving those around us. That's what the gospel is about. As John continues, he encourages us to cast our eyes to those that we are in community with and to help those in need, as he spoke about earlier. If we back up in 1 John to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This isn't just about worldly goods that John is talking about here, though it seems like that is, but spiritual health as well, as he continues in uh, chapter 5, verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, so first let's focus on what's not being said here, what isn't said here. Notice how John's encouragement for those in sin isn't to gossip about it with other people. Well, when you notice that someone's in sin, tell everybody about it. Go to, go to your people and complain about that and point it out and talk about how wicked and evil that person is, and, 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 and you know, especially if it's someone you didn't like to begin with. Oh, then you're justified in not liking that person. It's not what this says. It doesn't even say that the first thing should be to go and confront or condemn the person. Prayer is the first place that we should go when someone is in sin, when we see that someone is in sin. It shouldn't give us joy. That's not the Christian heart. If you see someone committing a sin, if you see someone in sin, especially if it's someone you don't like, the fir- if the first thought you have is joy, like, ha ha, I knew that person was a dirtbag. That's not Jesus' spirit, man. It should break your heart and say, man, I was right. There is something wrong with that person. Jesus, will you, will you meet them? Will you give them a touch from you? That's the Christian heart. That's what comes from abiding in Jesus. And now, if you have read this verse, or maybe if this is your first time reading it, uh, hopefully it makes you scratch your head a little bit. We're going to open another can of worms today as we look at this verse, because if you've read this and you say, hold on, Wait, is there a sin that doesn't lead to death? Because I don't know that sin. And it seems like the Bible, when it talks about sin, it says that all sin leads to death. 
How many of you are perfectly clear on what John is talking about with sins that don't lead to death versus sins that do lead to death? Okay, so I should probably talk about this. All right, so as we look at this, uh, it should confuse us a little bit because that's John's purpose. John's really good at this stuff. And he writes in a way that really makes you think. And you have to wonder. He talks in a lot of uh, uh, analogies and he uses a lot of uh, language that like we talked about last week with the water uh, and, and, and the blood and what does it mean. And, and so he uses symbolism in this. But what is he talking about here? Well, this would be a good place, first off, for some personal study because not everyone agrees on what John's talking about here. I'm going to give you what I've always understood this verse to mean and uh, what I believe it is saying here. But there are some who believe that you can lose your salvation. They would use a verse like this to claim that this sin is one that causes someone to lose their salvation. That what John is talking about here is that there's a particular sin that causes you to lose your salvation. Uh, this verse does sound similar to what the writer of Hebrews was getting at. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I've listened to people use this and, and similar verses to... Uh, push this idea that you can lose your salvation. So the question is, so are John and the author of Hebrews trying to say uh, that Christians who commit this sin lose their salvation and there is no hope for that? Because at first glance, when you just pull out those verses from Hebrews, it seems like, well, yeah, it's saying those who were Christians, if, if they uh, go back to their sin, that they, there's no hope for them and that they've lost their salvation. I don't believe that's at all what this is saying. If you look at it again in context and you do some research, you look around, you understand what these uh, things are getting at, especially if you look at it in context of the entire letter as well as the text of the next few verses, verses 17 and 18 of, of chapter 5. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is, there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. What John is saying here is those who are true believers don't keep on sinning, meaning willful, intentional sin. We've talked about this before, but if you are a Christian, yes, you will fail. You will sin. You will fall. But if you are able to willfully and intentionally engage in sin without conviction, you don't know Jesus. Flat out, it's covered many times in the scriptures, you don't know God. Now, if you're committing sin and you, especially either the Holy Spirit or it comes to light and you realize that you have committed a sin, it should lead you to repentance. That's a believer. That is a natural thing that happens for believers. So it would appear the sin that leads to death he is talking about and the author of Hebrews, who some would argue is John as well, uh, is a willful and intentional rejection of God after receiving the truth and witnessing the goodness of God. So there are some people who attend church, who are a part of a church, or who have attended church, who have uh, encountered God, they know the truth, they've encountered the gospel, they've seen the power of the Holy Spirit, they know God's goodness, 
And they still said no. They still said, not for me. I'm good enough. I'm going to focus on my, how good I am. I'm going to uh, at least try to be better than the person on the, in the pew over there. I know, that, I know they're not nearly as good as me, and that's good enough for me. I don't need you, Jesus. I'll just focus on my own holiness, my own righteousness, and as long as I'm better than some other people, I expect, I expect you to let me into heaven. And that's what I think John is getting at here. We know that God has given each of us free will. We have the uh, ability to either choose him or reject him, which means that no matter how much we pray, God cannot force someone to receive him as Savior. That's what John is saying here. Also note that John isn't saying that you cannot pray for the person who commits the sin that leads to death. Notice that. If you read this, read it again. He's, he says uh, that... He's not saying that you can't or that it's wrong to do it. John is just advising against it as he doubts the effectiveness of such a prayer. If someone has truly come face to face with Jesus and they walked away and said no, John's saying, I don't know what you can pray for. What more can you give them? If they've encountered the one true God and still said no, they're dead. And they're on their way to hell. And there's nothing your prayers can do because what's God going to do? The best he can do is show up again and again and again and again if that person's willing to reject him after coming face to face with him. John is saying, I don't advise you to pray for that. Spend your time in prayer for those who aren't committing that sin that leads to eternal death. Pray for the ones that haven't yet met him face to face. That when they meet him, see, I, and, and I think that's what John is getting at here uh, in that verse is, let me see, we've got to go back to it. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. This is talking about uh, what, giving him life. What is that uh, syn- synonymous to? Salvation. What John is talking about here is that if, if you see a brother in sin, living in their sin, that's not a believer, obviously, if they're living in their sin. Pray for that person, John is saying. Because why? The hope is that they'll meet God face to face and he'll give them life. That they will receive him as Savior. But he, then he goes on to, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death those that haven't come face to face and rejected God. He says, now there is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. He's saying, I just don't see the point in that. Okay, so hopefully we're, we're good on that. I know it's a lot, and we're kind of blazing right through it, but uh, let's move on to verse 19. He, John finishes his letter with something of a rallying cry for, all believe, for the believers that he's writing this letter to. Uh, and in verse 9 he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lives in the power of the evil one. John knows that he is a believer uh, and that he is sent from God. He's acknowledging, he's not questioning, just because of all these heretics and these uh, false teachers that are uh, condemning him and claiming that he's not from God and that he's this evil guy uh, who's, who's just preaching like the basic gospel and they've got the true answer. Um, that's this kind of stuff that John's fighting against when he writes this letter. He's saying, I know that I'm, I'm from God. And John's also acknowledging the influence of Satan in the world. Remember, this book, First John, is all about uh, leading them to a, a clearer picture of who God is. The, back to the basics, 
It's about believing in Jesus. It's about claiming that he is who he says he is and, 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 and that he was God from the moment that he was born and beyond when he died. He was God. Jesus was Jesus the whole time is what John has been saying through this letter. And he's trying to point out that the influence of Satan gets all through, even in the church. And so these teachers that are teaching this stuff that sounds really good but doesn't line up with the gospel, that's just the influence of the enemy trying to muddy the waters. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, there's more in this verse than we have time to unpack. The whole sermon we could have spent just in this verse because of all the theology that John packs into this one little verse here into just about two two sentences. Uh, one, One thing he's doing is John is, again, refuting the false teachers by reiterating Jesus' credentials. Uh, Again, 1 John is about people trying to diminish Jesus' credentials and saying that he was that Jesus was a human being who the Spirit of Christ came down into at baptism and then left him before the crucifixion. And John is fighting that uh, false teaching by saying that he is the Son of God and that uh, just by saying that uh, we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, that he is God's Son, that he is Jesus, and he is the Christ. All three, all at the same time throughout his entire life he also notes that jesus has come um, knowing again god obviously knowing in the future that people would question if jesus ever even came in the first place he's saying he has come and he's given us understanding of the father that's one of the beautiful things that jesus does for us is that we can understand the father because of jesus the son and how has he done that through the holy spirit he illuminates to us the things of God. As we read the Bible, I, I, and I'll never stop reiterating this, especially when we're reading through, when we're, we're teaching through a book of the Bible, I, I encourage you to be reading that chapter every day, working up to the sermon, because the Spirit of God has way better things to say than I do. Because unfortunately, God has to work through me, and though I constantly pray that I would not mess up His Word to you and, and not get in the way of what he says. The Holy Spirit's way better at it than me. And so I want you to have the opportunity to sit in the word of God and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to illuminate understanding. You'll get way better things from him than you'll ever get from anybody that teaches the word of God. And if you, are, you have somebody who say, well, well ah, the best things I've ever gotten are from this teacher or from that teacher, you need to spend more time with God. Because the Holy Spirit has way better things for you. The most significant things you've ever gotten should be from your time with, in solitude with the Spirit. And He speaks things to you. You're reading His Word and He illuminates something and you're just like, whoa, I've never seen that before. Or it just, it hits something that you're going through in your life so profoundly and so specifically that it just rocks your world. For me, there's been multiple moments where I'm worshiping and he speaks a, a scripture to me or times where you're just going through things and he speaks different words. You should hear from God. One of the things that John talks about in his letter is you should hear from the voice of the Holy Spirit. He speaks. We should be listening. 
A believer knows his voice, just like a sheep knows the voice of their shepherd. They can differentiate that voice from all the other voices in the world. And yet there's so many people that teach today, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't actually talk. He doesn't actually speak. And that's a lie. So often the New Testament talks about this speaking role, about helping us understand. It's not just like inklings and feelings and like weird weird emotional movements that the Holy Spirit does. He'll do stuff like that, but he also speaks with a voice. And we should recognize that voice and know that voice. We know the Father by being in the Son, John is saying, and we cannot be in the Father without being in the Son. He kind of mixes these two together in this verse in a way that makes it so clear that you can't know the Father without knowing the Son. But if you know the Son, then you already know the Father. And that's only true because they're one. Now, I'm a junior. Um, Some of you probably don't know that. Uh, I'm named after my dad, uh, and you know me. But let me promise you, just because you know me doesn't mean you know my Father, uh, because we're not one. We're related. We're similar. We have a lot of similar mannerisms, but... We, live, we lived very different lifestyles. My dad died back in 2008, uh, and as far as I know, never knew Jesus. Just because we are father and son, that doesn't make us one. Just because Jesus and the father are known as father and son doesn't make them one. The fact that they're both God, that's what makes them one. And John is really hammering at that as he finishes out this letter. And it almost seems weird the last verse of 1 John. You know, like, did, did we lose, like, the last, like, couple sentences of 1 John? Because this is a really weird way to finish a letter. Uh, I'm sure this is how you guys, like, sign your emails, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Done. This letter is perfect. Yeah. Just walk away from that one. It seems odd that he would finish it. Yeah, instead of a traditional farewell, uh, and I'm just going to Take us all the way back. I don't know how many weeks we've even been in this series, like eight weeks. Um, If you remember, 1 John is one of only two letters in the New Testament that doesn't have a formal introduction and and stating who the book is written by. Do you remember the other one? Man, who was that? My wife, she's good. I didn't give her that answer either. She's just smart, that one. Hebrews. Uh, There's the only two letters that don't have that formal introduction. So not only does 1 John not have an actual traditional uh, regular introduction, but he also finishes it very strangely because often, especially uh, Paul, when he finishes a letter, he usually says, this is written by my hand, and he signs it, uh, and he does these things to, to let people know. John, he just, hey, keep yourself from idols. Later. And he's out. But John reminds his readers one last time to keep their eyes firmly fixed on God. John's encouragement to keep themselves from idols, will keep their hearts true to God. Because it's like he spends his whole letter talking about who Jesus is and talking about the authentic Jesus and that he is who he said he was and uh, this Jesus is real and he is God and and all you have to do is believe in him. And he finishes, but don't turn to idols. Because he knows what? He knows the enemy's tactics. So many believers have been chopped off at the knee because though they believe in Jesus, they worship idols. And what kind of idols? Well, we don't have idols anymore. 
How many of us got a TV in our house? Not saying that that's an idol in and of itself, but man, it certainly can be. I've seen people that say, there's uh, just raising your hands and getting loud, that has, no, that has no place in church. Those same people will lose their minds when someone scores a touchdown on that TV. They'll get passionate there, but well, that doesn't belong in church. You know, I, I, Jesus doesn't get my emotions. Oh, hold on. I thought he got the whole thing. He gets everything. We should be more excited about Jesus and who he is uh, than anything else. Uh, we, we've talked about how what we're passionate about, we will talk about. It's not like, oh, well, you need to start talking about Jesus. No, what you need is to encounter Jesus. And when you become passionate about your relationship with Jesus, you'll automatically start talking about it. Because you spend a few days around somebody. You spend some time around. That's one of the things I love about like men's retreats, which we got to set one of those up. We're going to start doing men's retreats next year. Or women, when you, when you do some of your things and you get together, you spend time with someone. The more time you spend with them, the more clear it becomes what they're passionate about. Why? Because they'll constantly talk about those things. Some of you know uh, what I'm passionate about because I talk about it all the time. Um, and you even make recommendations like, hey, prime ribs on sale over here. Why? Because you know me. You know what I love. Because I talk about it all the time. You know I like coffee. You know I like certain things like that. Why? Those things naturally come out. So if we're passionate about Jesus, no one has to tell us to do it. You don't have to be guilted into it. You don't have to be shamed into it. If you love Jesus and you're passionate about him, guess what? You're going to talk about him. Though for some of us, we find ourselves more often talking about politics or cars or other things. Why? Because that's a way bigger passion for us. That's our idol. Anything we worship in place of God is an idol. Anything that gets our passion instead of Jesus is our idol. Anything that we put as a priority over God is an idol. Anything that gets a piece of our heart that we have to take from Jesus and give to something is an idol. And that can be a TV, that can be a sport, that can be our children, that can be a lot of different things. And it can be even things that are good. It's good to love our kids. It's good to be passionate about our families and want to spend time with our families and, and, and all of that. But man, it can easily become an idol. We can say, well, I don't have time for the things of God because I got to love my kids. And, and that's, how, that's how I'm being a Christian is by loving my kids. Well, that, that is true. That should be part of how you worship God. But if they take a higher priority than God does, that's your idol. So what can we take away from what we talked about today? Well, when was the last time that you sought the will of God before asking for something? When was the last time where you entered a time of prayer and the first thing on your agenda was aligning your will to God's? And saying, all right, Lord, Ah, man, I had a rough week, so I just want to touch base with you and see if our wills are still aligned before I jump into this whole asking for things. I think uh, we've, it's been a while since we talked about it, so we probably need to talk about it again, but uh, one of the things uh, I'll, you'll almost never hear me saying is the Lord's Prayer, um, because it's not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's the Lord's model of prayer. He's not praying in that moment. He's teaching them how to pray by saying, pray like this. And he gives us this awesome model that focuses on God, that, 
Uh, it aligns our will to his because what does it do? First, it, it acknowledges the relationship we have, our father, and, and we're in this place of uh, viewing God again as our father, and he's this awesome dad, and, and, he, and he invites us in that way. So we know, like, yes, he's this awesome, uh, amazing creator. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's all these things. But first and foremost, Jesus says, he's your father. It's relational. He invites you in in that, in that warm embrace of the Father. And he says, who, is, who art in heaven. So then he, and he casts our eyes larger than just our dad, that he's got a bigger role than just being our father, that uh, hallowed be your name. He's got, this, he's got this name that is holy, that is righteous. And if you walk through that model of prayer, you don't just repeat it, but you go through the different aspects of his prayer, like Jesus intended by saying, pray like this, uh, if we walk through those different uh, rooms of prayer, by the time we get to that place where it says, give, me this, give us this day our daily bread, by the time we start asking for stuff, our minds and our hearts are lined up with him. And then the things that we ask of him are in line with his will because we're in that place. We've acknowledged who he is, who we are in, in, in relation to God, how holy his name is. That it's about his kingdom coming to earth, his will being done. All those things we focus on. If you've never done that, I encourage you to, do, to, to follow in that. If you don't know what I'm even talking about, send me a message, email me, whatever. We'll grab coffee, we'll go through the whole thing. Um, Fred Hartley does this uh, amazing teaching through that. That's where I learned it, so I have to give him credit because it's, it's phenomenal. And I promise you, you'll spend times in prayer where you never get past the first couple words of the Lord's model of prayer because you start spending time and, and you go in with this like crisis that you have going on in your life or this thing that you really want and you begin to spend time with Him and you spend so much time aligning your will to His that you forget about what you wanted because what you got was Him. And there is nothing better than that, than spending time in His presence and instead of receiving from Him, you receive Him. And all of a sudden, that stuff that seemed like a crisis, when you see the majestic power of who he is, when you focus again on how big God is, how awesome he is, how holy he is, you're like, oh, yeah, that problem I came with, man, that's nothing. That, I don't even, I don't, I'm not even worried about that anymore because you know about that. I don't have to try to convince you to do something about it. I just spent time with you and I was reminded that you are good. When was the last time that you processed that your will might be out of line of God's when you asked for something and didn't receive it? If you've been asking for something, then maybe it's time to check in with God and ask, is my will really aligned to yours? Sometimes the answer is wait. It's not no, but it's I'm doing something. That your will is aligned with his, but your timeline isn't quite lined up with his. And so we've got to get, on, get onto that train. But I think overall what we can take from the second half of 1 John 5 is pursue oneness with God. Today, this week, the rest of your life. Make prayer, make worship, make work, make raising your kids, make everything about oneness with God. Teach your kids what it means to have oneness with God, to pursue that above all else, to not tag Jesus onto things, to not slap a, a Jesus sticker on your kingdom, but to pursue oneness with him and make that a priority. Because let me tell you, if all you're doing is teaching it and you're not living it, it's not going to be very effective. 
I know this. I was an overweight personal trainer. It doesn't work great. <laughs> you're teaching it, but you're obviously not living it. I had to start living it, and then I could teach it. And people wanted to listen to me. Seek God, not the things of God. Too often, it's so easy to ask God to do things, to go to him like a vending machine. God, give me E6. That's what I need today. But seek him, his presence. Pray for those who don't yet know God. If you don't have a prayer list of people that you're praying for that don't know Jesus, then you need to expand your heart. Or more specifically, you need God's heart. You need to view the people around you, the people you work with, your neighbors, in light of who God is and say, God, just give me an opportunity to get them a little bit closer to you. That's, that's all I want, is to get my neighbor, to get my family member, to get my coworker a little bit, one step closer to you. Give me opportunities to love them, to display your love, to be your love to them. Because once I get them to you, that's when the work happens. Either they're going to accept you or reject you, but that's not in my hands. I can't control that but I can help get them to you. Pray that they might know him like we know him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we know you, that you are our Savior, that you have rescued us from the pit of hell. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you speak to us, that you minister to us, that you illuminate things to us, that you give understanding where things that seem silly and seem like uh, they don't line up with the world's wisdom, you make them make sense because you are God. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who pursue you, who, who, whose goal is to know you and to be with you, not to get things from you. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart for those who are lost, who don't know you. Lord, I pray that we would have a relationship with you that, that flows out from us in everything that we say and do, that we would spend time uh, aligning ourselves and we would be one with you in a way that compels us to love others with your love, to tell them about the goodness we have received and invite them to that same journey. Lord, I pray that we would be a family of God here at this church who knows you, who knows what it is to sit face to face with you, to be wrapped up in your arms, to, to sit in your presence, God. Because it's that that will change us. It's not the teaching here, it's not the music here, it's not the, the pews here that's going to change us, it's going to be you. Holy Spirit, would you speak words of life to us? Would you uh, open our eyes to the sin that is in our life that's blocking us from getting to you, from uh, relationship with you? Lord, I pray we would meet with you this week. Would this be uh, a year that in the Christmas season we met with you different than we've ever met with you and it changed us for the rest of our life? I pray that next year would be a year of awakening for us that we would spend so much time in your presence that the things of this world would fade away all the idols that we have gathered would would lose their luster and we would want you above everything else in this world lord thank you for loving us for being patient with us and pursuing us in jesus name we pray amen amen have a great week